2: Hello, and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Lizal Wellbeing Show. Super excited for today. I'm joined by Dr. Linda Anagawa, an award winning doctor dedicated to the treatment of metabolic and weight related disease. She is also the author of Not Another Keto Book, the obesity medicine solution to lose weight, boost your metabolism, and feel great. Well, if that's not a promise, I don't know what it is. And we are due for a really interesting chat today about all things metabolic health, including why it matters and how to measure our own, as well as low-carb eating, its potential benefits for our health and how it differs from the stricter ketogenic diets and what it looks like to eat this way on a day-to-day basis. Linda, I know, is full of really great insights, so please do share with anyone in your life, who may well be struggling with metabolic or weight related diseases? So let's get comfy and dive straight into today's episode. So, a very warm welcome, Linda. This is a subject so close to my heart. I'm delighted that we've been able to catch up. I know you're currently in Hawaii, so we've been juggling time zones, haven't we? We definitely
1: have. It's not easy to connect halfway around the world, but I am just delighted to have this opportunity to chat with you, Liz.
2: Well, it's it's so timely, I mean, especially I think as we start relatively uh, soon into the new year to be kind of thinking about our overall health, metabolic health in particular, which I'd love to drill down into. But first of all, how did you come to work in obesity medicine? What's your background?
1: Yeah, well, my background is in very traditional academic primary care. I was seeing patients and teaching residents and medical students And, you know, over the course of about a decade, I found myself really starting to get honestly kind of sad about the, you know, the lack of impact that I felt that I was really having on patients. I mean, I would see my patients month after month in the office And all I was really doing was adding on medications to their current regimens, right? Because their health just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, Mm. I never wanted to become a physician to really just manage chronic disease. I wanted to be a part of the solution. And to me, part of the solution was empowering patients to look at the root cause of their diseases, essentially, and to fix those root causes. And so that led me to the field of obesity medicine, which is is very holistic and comprehensive, right? I mean, we do use medications to help, but we also look at things like the diet and the lifestyle and levels of stress and how well people are sleeping, right? I mean, there's so many different things to look at. And so I found the field completely fascinating and that's kind of led me on a very, very different journey in terms of my career.
2: I think it's so interesting and it's so wonderful that we can have this broad discussion when it comes to obesity and being over a healthy weight. And it's not just about calories in and calories out. And we're really moving the conversation on, aren't we? I know your book begins with a description of metabolic health. Can you explain exactly what this is for our listeners? Sure,
1: absolutely. So, you know, I think the classic definition of metabolic health, there's There's different definitions depending on which society you're you're talking about, which medical society, right? So what most of the societies have in common when we define metabolic health is we talk about having a normal waist circumference, um, a level of good cholesterol in the blood that's deemed healthful, a normal level of your blood sugar, as well as blood pressure. But, you know, I kind of like to look at an expanded definition of metabolic health. To me, I also feel that strong immunity and disease resistance is a very important part of good metabolic health. Um, Psychological well-being and also the absence of inflammatory symptoms, like we see in chronic pain, is also a very, very big part of this, Liz.
2: Interesting. I mean, obviously, very, very relevant to to our current global situation when we look at metabolic health disorders being linked with COVID and poorer outcomes and our immune system. What are the markers of good metabolic health?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, some of the things that I just mentioned are really the markers that I typically look at with my patients. Um, I think being able to be as active as you want to be right without pain getting in the way without feeling short of breath right feeling energetically well not feeling easily exhausted you know i'll tell you it's it's so interesting to me liz because ironically our poor metabolic health was what really made us vulnerable as a population with covid-19 Yet, our reactions to the pandemic, right, to isolate ourselves, to cocoon, to become less physically active, and to eat more unhealthfully has actually made this so much worse. So, you know, I think the message that I'm really trying to bring to all of my patients, and of course, the message that I think, I hope is coming through my book, really, is that as we're emerging, as we're starting off 2022, bringing that renewed focus on our metabolic health is really what's gonna pull us through here. And you know, we've got these great vaccines now for COVID-19, which of course is amazing and, and very, very much needed. But what do we do when the next pandemic strikes, right? We really mm. have to fortify ourselves Yes, as much as possible, right? And um, good metabolic health is the answer.
2: Mm. You talked about um, a healthy waistline. Is there a simple kind of equation? I mean, I think we all probably know when our trousers don't do up or our, our pants don't do up, as, as as you'd say in the states. Is is there a kind of a measure of that that we should be looking for?
1: Yeah, and and you know, it's kind of interesting too, Liz, because. So many of us are really focused on that number on the scale, right? Like I really want to be 140 pounds because that's what I was when I graduated high school or or whatever that number is. But that number actually only correlates very loosely with metabolic health. The waist circumference is actually more meaningful because that can help reflect how much visceral weight we carry, right? And that's the weight around the belly that is more insulin resistant, and that puts us at higher risk for diabetes and heart attacks. So for women, we're generally looking at a waist circumference of 35 inches or below as being most strongly associated with good metabolic health, and for men, below 40.
2: Gosh, okay, so 35 inches for women and below, 40 for men. I know the nation is rushing for their tape measures right now. <laughs> Are there a- and and then things like blood pressure, you know, presumably having high blood pressure is a sign of metabolic health or ill health. And that's something that we can work to reduce.
1: Correct. Yes. So for for blood pressures, we're really looking at measurements, um, ideally below 135 over about 80 to 85, depending on who you ask.
2: Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. Is it possible then to be overweight, but to have good metabolic health? And And if so, is that common or rare?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. If you're just looking at the number on the scale, which doesn't tell the whole story, absolutely. I have patients who are often flagged as a referral to me for, you know, quote unquote, obesity, because the number on the scale puts them into a higher risk category. However, if you measure their waist circumference, they might not actually have an abnormal waist circumference. Or even better, if they're able to get a body fat measurement done with a reliable in-person um, body composition analyzer, we might find that they actually are more muscular, right?
2: Than mm.
1: you know, we would think. And of course, the scale doesn't break that down for us. So, mm. you know, I think just because the scale is high, it actually doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem. And I always encourage patients to have a thorough, comprehensive medical analysis done with their doctor to really look into this and see. I, on the, the contrary to this, Liz, it's certainly possible for individuals who are at a normal weight to be extremely metabolically unhealthy too, right? I mean, we definitely <laughs> see people whose weight falls into a normal range, Um who have pre-diabetes or polycystic ovary syndrome for women um, or even outright type two diabetes. And this can vary with ethnicity too, right? We know that Asian races as a whole tend to store fat more readily around the midsection of the body. So oftentimes these are individuals who won't be flagged as overweight yet when I look into their health more closely with them, we do find evidence of metabolic disease. So there's so many things, you know, to factor in here. And I think the key for people to remember is, you know, we have to have an individualized approach, right? When we analyze each patient, right? It's really, really hard to generalize overall.
2: Well, you, you talk about that in your book, actually, you take an adapt and adjust approach to weight management in in your clinic what exactly do you mean by that adapt and adjust
1: (laughs) sure so you know I guess a couple of different things I I do feel that adapt and adjust lends itself more to individual discussions with patients rather than just kind of telling people well you've got to simply eat less and the rest Mm. will take care of itself it's not true you know our bodies are not math equations they are complex chemistry labs, right? We're we're a hormonal soup, if you will. (laughs) So the adapt and adjust Mm -hmm. some of
2: us very soupy.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. And I mean especially as women, we go through Mm -hmm. so many hormonal adjustments through the course of our adult lives, right? I mean once puberty hits, we have shifts as we become adult women. We go through pregnancy and childbirth. We go through menopause, right? So there's a tremendous amount of adapting and adjusting that our bodies do. And so I think reflecting that approach to weight management makes a lot of sense. And then the other important piece of this, you know how you might start out on a diet, right? And you do really well. You're very, very strict with yourself, Um, You do that for a couple weeks, you lose some weight, and then you feel like, you know what, I, I just don't know if this is really working for me. I'm going back to the same way I was before. We kind of develop this all or nothing mentality, Liz, right? Like I'm either dieting, I'm being strict. People will say I'm being so good versus I'm being bad, right? And I really want to get away from that mentality because I think it's harmful, I think it becomes discouraging, and it's certainly not something that improves our metabolic health. So rather than the diet and cheat way of thinking, adapt and adjust allows us to take a more flexible approach with the way we see eating for better health. Are we gonna be perfect 100% of the time? Of course not, right? I
2: mean,
1: (laughs) yeah, we're gonna have champagne on New Year's, we're gonna have a piece of cake on our birthday, That's not a determinant of how healthy or how ill we are, right? Mm. So cultivating the notion of a little bit more flexibility with our lifestyle changes is why I describe things in terms of adapt and adjust.
2: Now, one of the things that you talk a lot about, which I have become a big fan of over the years, is the recommendations for a low-carb diet, why do you as a doctor particularly focus on a low carb diet?
1: Yeah, so as much as I'll say that one size does not fit all, Liz, I do find low carb approaches to be extremely relevant for us today. I mean, you know, when you look at the history of nutritional advice, and I'll speak, you know, in terms of the United States, right? But I think. The UK also had a similar approach for many, many decades. You know, we told people eat lots of whole grains, Um, eat lots of fruits, right? And these are- Absolutely, when
2: when you look at the food pyramid, you know, the the bottom, the bit that we're supposed to be eating the most of is all bread and pasta and potatoes and, and carbs, isn't it?
1: That's correct, yes. And, you know, when you look at the type of eating- that ancestral humans had, right? It was more focused on proteins, right? I mean, we were mobile herders. We followed our food, right? We were hunters and we were gatherers. The advent of grains into the human diet didn't happen until very, very, very recently. And of course, we all see what's happened to our metabolic health, right? Now, I I never want to demonize an entire food group and tell people never, ever eat this or never, ever eat that. But with the advent of the industrial revolution and more and more processed grains and processed products that are high in starches in our diet... I would argue that our metabolic health has trended progressively worse. I mean, we've gotten sharply, sharply sicker in the last 100 years, right? As all of this has been occurring. And along with weight gain, our bodies become more insulin resistant. And what worsens insulin resistance? More carbohydrate intake. And nice. so, you know, I think also the low carb approach really helps us manage hunger. I always tell people you can't lose weight when you feel like you're starving, right? Because that biological urge to eat is just too strong.
2: And oh gosh, it's very strong. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I don't care how much willpower anybody. Yeah. Has.
2: When you're hungry. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way you're going to be able to conquer that. Right. And I don't want a weight loss journey or a health journey to feel like a battle of wills, right? You've got to will yourself. I mean, you know, sometimes just even getting up in the morning and getting your kids out the door to school
2: <laughs> is enough of a battle of wills. For oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We yeah, we know that one. I love that, that we actually you know, eat so that our body works with us. And I have to say, for me personally, since taking on a much, much lower carb intake, I don't get hungry. I just don't get those sharp hunger pangs. And is that to do with my insulin then being more stable so I don't get these sharp extremes of hunger?
1: Yeah, there's actually a couple mechanisms at work here, Liz. So you hit the nail on the head with insulin when we focus on proteins and greens and sprinkle in healthy fat for satiety and variety, our insulin levels are going to be way lower and they're going to be way more steady, right? We won't get that post-meal insulin spike and then the subsequent crash that makes us feel terrible, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of people who say, well, I have hypoglycemia, I need to eat more starch. And actually that's precisely the wrong way to treat it, right? Hypoglycemia is really a problem of insulin excess, right? So eating low carb fixes that. But anyway, the other thing too is that with protein-based eating, our digestion becomes slower, right? Because carbohydrates digest very, very quickly. Protein and fat digest much slower. So that's another mechanism that helps us to feel fuller longer so we're not battling those cravings.
2: Mm. I, I know for me, I always try and start the day now with protein and healthy fats. So rather than the classic bowl of cereal, piece of toast, croissant, bagel, whatever, going for something that's, you know, eggs or avocado or something that's, that's you know, far richer in healthy fats, you know, nice fat Greek yogurt, something like that. I'll have a bit of that in the morning, and I—I I, I simply sometimes I'll even miss lunch because I'm not hungry. Whereas if I find myself having a bowl of cereal by eleven o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking, right, where's my next snack coming from? Because I'm—I've I'm, got my hunger pangs again.
1: Right. I mean, it, it's dramatic. It can really be dramatic, and you know, the other thing I think which is so perfect about that strategy that you just mentioned for yourself, Liz, is that. This can be really, really simple, right? Yes. You know, people often say, well, cereal is so easy. Well, yeah, it's easy, but so is just grabbing a boiled egg from the fridge, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be difficult.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what's the difference then between keto and low carb? Because there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about people, you know, going keto and, and cutting out all carbohydrate altogether. Is there much of a difference and, and different results you think that we get from either being keto or low carb?
1: Yeah, this is a super interesting question, Liz. So thinking about things like just in terms of definition. A ketogenic diet is a type of low-carb eating plan. And like you mentioned correctly, it's much lower in carbohydrates than a low-carb eating approach. Now, it's impossible to eliminate all carbohydrates, right? Even if you eat a bowl of lettuce leaves, you know, you're know you going to get 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrate in there total, believe it or not. Um, So a ketogenic diet is one where ketones are produced in large amounts by the burning of fat in the fat cells, which is called lipolysis. Now, is ketosis necessary for weight loss? For many people, no, it's definitely not necessary in order to lose weight. Weight loss, like I mentioned, is largely hormonal, However, when you eat a calorie deficit along with the food choice changes, you will also lose weight as a result. Now, part of this also depends on how insulin resistant you are too, right? So people who are maybe just suffering from very mild insulin resistance can lose a significant amount of weight with a small carbohydrate reduction, right? I have folks who are eating, you know, maybe 50 to 75 total grams of carbohydrate a day. It sounds like a lot, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, compared to their usual eating, right, it's much reduced and they can lose weight very, very well. Now, for people who are severely insulin resistant, if they're not seeing weight loss, if they're not seeing improvement in blood glucose and blood pressure, for example, with moderate carb restriction, I might guide them to lower levels of carb restriction, you know, including an all out ketogenic eating plan.
2: So how can you tell how insulin resistant you are?
1: Yeah. So the most sensitive indicator would be a blood test called um, the fasting insulin level and the fasting glucose. So you would take these two numbers and you would plug it into an equation known as the HOMA-IR, and that stands for the homeostatic model of insulin resistance. Um, There's a really nice online calculator that's free and accessible to all via a website called The Blood Code. And all you would do is put in those numbers once you get a blood test from your doctor, And in general, a score of two or higher is significant insulin resistance and normal would be less than one. And essentially what we're looking at here, you know, because I have a lot of patients who will come to see me and they say, well, my doctor checked my blood sugar and it's normal. I don't have diabetes. Well, that's great. That's awesome. I'm really, you know, obviously very, very pleased when someone can tell me they don't have type two diabetes, but just looking at that glucose level alone, is not telling me what happened to their insulin level, right? Is their insulin level hyper-responsive to the amount of glucose in their blood, and that's a very, very important indicator.
2: Interesting. What was the name of the website again that you can go and check?
1: Yeah, it's called thebloodcodecode.com.
2: The Blood Code. So you could get a, a test. Have a look at the website ask your GP to do the test for you and then key in the numbers to give you a more accurate result, really.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it's it's very, very sensitive. Um, you know, there's another blood test that's often run by physicians called the hemoglobin A1c test in order to diagnose prediabetes or diabetes. But Liz, I cannot tell you how many times I have patients come to me with a normal blood glucose and a normal A1c test and they're still baffled. Well, how come I'm not losing any weight? What's going on with my body? I'm fatigued all the time. I get these hypoglycemic crashing feelings after I eat. And then we go ahead and we check the insulin and fasting glucose. And there it is, you know, the insulin resistance is is glaring really. But I think it's so important for people to know, you know, like I always tell people, listen, you know, this is actually really good, helpful information. We have a much better idea of what your body is doing, and we can take specific measures in order to correct it.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?"
1: United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number
0: Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
2: That's so interesting. And, and you know, looking at taking out the whole grains and, and so many carbs from the diet, what are your thoughts that low carb eating can negatively impact on our fiber intake and potentially the health of our gut through that? Yeah, this
1: is a super interesting question. So um, I think it's really not true for a couple of different reasons. You know, like I was saying before, Eating low carb, you are still getting in plenty of prebiotic fiber, right? Like just by eating a bowl of veggies once a day. There's lots and lots of fiber in there, which should be able to nourish our gut microbiome um, to continue to grow and flourish, right?
2: So you could be keto and still have plenty of fiber from your your green veggies?
1: You can, yeah. Now, here's the other side of this too, which I think is fascinating. And there's research in its early stages on this, Liz. So people who are in nutritional ketosis, one of the ketones that are produced in abundance in the body is something called butyrate. And butyrate in the bloodstream is a very, very important nutrient for our gut, right? And it helps keep the health of our gut microbiome in check. And there have been studies that show that when you are in nutritional ketosis and you're producing lots and lots of this butyrate, which is helping to feed the lining of your gut, we see favorable increases in the types of bacteria in the gut that are associated with better metabolic health and lower weight
2: um isn't that so- fascinating i mean I've, I've read that butyrate is exactly that very anti-inflammatory super super healthy for our gut and, and we can get it in things like butter can't we butyrate is, is, is found in, in butter and healthy fats That's i hadn't realized that actually if you're in ketosis that your body is then producing more of its own butyrate isn't that fascinating
1: it's so fascinating, and you know, you have scientists um, like Jeff Volek and Steve Finney, who have really called into question this kind of dogma around fiber and how much of you know how much dietary fiber we really need to be eating every day, you know. And I think that the whole dietary fiber argument has kind of led us you know to consume more and more whole grains on the assumption that this is medically necessary so it's definitely an interesting side of the coin that you know you don't discuss mm-hmm. discussed often
2: it's so interesting because i did a keto experiment where i went keto for about six weeks and i felt incredibly healthy but what really struck me was how i ate nothing out of a packet so, you know, the processed food industry made no money out of me whatsoever. <laughs> it was literally, you know, fresh green and white vegetables and, you know, eggs and dairy and meat and fish and cheese and all, all, all that kind of thing. Um, and just, you know, very simply cooked from scratch. It was all very delicious. I didn't feel I was missing out on anything. Kind of missed a few crunchy things, I have to say. I kind of missed the the textural crunch of some of those carbs. But I guess there is a, a big, there are big players here, aren't there, that have a huge vested interest in keeping us buying all the, the grain-fueled foods. If you think of everything that comes out of a packet, a lot of it has somewhere got some kind of grain origin and is obviously usually very high in carb.
1: Absolutely. I know. And and when when you look at all of these big players, it's really clear where the dietary guidelines come from. And, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic, Liz. You know, I I feel like our medical societies in the US really haven't done enough of a good job taking a hard look at these things, you know, and saying, hey, listen, Mm. is this really what's the best for our patients? We have to think outside of the box here,
2: you know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? When you look at the dietary guidelines, when they came in, I don't know when they came into play, maybe the 40s or 50s, we've just got progressively fatter and fatter and fatter. So clearly they're not working. Something is going wrong somewhere.
1: They are not working. And, you know, I agree. It's also very interesting when these dietary guidelines came in, this was also during the time of very, very active drug development to treat these chronic diseases too, right? Like antihypertensives, a whole bunch of different new insulins for diabetes. I mean... You know, the cynic in me, of course, always wonders about these connections.
2: Oh, my goodness. But that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Oh, that sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> follow the money. But I'm interested to to talk more generally about kind of carbs and particularly you know not just whole grains but things like sugars. And obviously we know that having lots of refined sugar and that kind of white table granulated sugar is not going to do us any good at all. What do you think of things like the non-sugar sweeteners such as stevia and and, and some of the other new forms of of non-calorific sweeteners? Are they a good alternative for a low carb diet?
1: yeah so I mean gosh there's been a lot of controversy about these as well. Um, I think that there are many brands of natural non-sugar sweeteners which are far better for most of us to consume and they can still allow us mm-hmm. to enjoy the sweet taste you know that that we crave from time to time right so, you mentioned stevia. I think that's an outstanding choice. Um, the monk fruit sweeteners, the extract of monk fruit is often used um, in many low carb products, that I think mm-hmm. is an amazing alternative. Sugar alcohols are also generally felt to be safe, although for some people, they they can cause some gastrointestinal side effects.
2: So those things like sorbitol and xylitol?
1: Yep, and erythritol is is one of the most common, Um, maltitol. For most people, erythritol is far better tolerated than sorbitol, xylitol, and maltitol. Um, You know, I think non-sugar sweeteners have gotten a bad rap in the past, you know, like for example, the, um, the brands that contain aspartame, which in very high doses may contribute to tumor formation in lab animals. Here's the thing though, like anything in medicine, we always want to look at the big picture and the risks and benefits of any intervention, right? I mean, Look at all the different side effects that come from, say, a diabetes drug or a cholesterol medication, right? Oh. And yet we continue to push these on patients in high, high numbers. In my mind, the risks to many of us of eating too much refined sugar far outweighs the risk of having a little bit of non-sugar sweetener from time to time, right? Yes. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. Um And I think used in moderation, they can actually help you create a lot of fun. You know, like, for example, over U.S. Thanksgiving, of course, we wanted to have some pumpkin pie. But ours was made with monk fruit sweetener and almond flour for the crust so that we could indulge more healthfully.
2: So almond flour you'd be using because it's high in protein and good fats and, and low carb, and you use that as a regular wheat flour alternative, would you?
1: Yep, exactly, Liz.
2: So talk me through an average kind of day of eating. What what would your, on average, what would your daily diet kind of look like?
1: Yeah, sure. So typically, um, I do practice intermittent fasting, so I'm usually done eating um, by 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. And then I usually skip breakfast and don't eat until maybe 11 a.m. I do have coffee with a couple tablespoons of cream in first thing in the morning when I wake
2: up. Sounds great.
1: <laughs> it is. It's really good. And then I, I don't eat generally, like I said, until about 11 And I might have an egg omelet with vegetables um, topped with maybe a little sour cream or avocado or diced tomato. And then I generally don't eat again, like I mentioned, until four or five in the afternoon. And I love veggies. I do enjoy seafood quite a bit. So, you know, I, I feel like maybe I eat a sort of Mediterranean style low carb, if that makes sense. So generally Mm -hmm. some type of seafood sauteed in olive oil and then another green vegetable. If I'm feeling like I'm craving starches, I might have a side of cauliflower rice or have spiralized zucchini noodles. And then generally a cup of decaf coffee with cream and a sweetener I do buy the Lily's brand chocolates and the Chalk Zero chocolates in case I need a little bite of something sweet after dinner and then I feel pretty yeah. really satisfied.
2: It's amazing, isn't it, how quickly you can lose your sweet tooth. You know, I I now f- don't get sugar cravings, I think, because my insulin hopefully has been pretty much flatlined through through not having so many carbs. And I just weaned myself off the kind of the milkier junk chocolate gradually having darker and darker chocolate and now i'm i'm really happy to have sort of 80% dark chocolate and and you only need a tiny bit of it that's the great thing but just to give you that that take the edge off something when you need something sweet it, it's a it's remarkable stuff and of course it dark chocolate's very good for your gut as well isn't it
1: it is it's good for your gut there's lots of great anti-inflammatory power in dark chocolate too liz and you know i think one point that you just made that i really want to highlight is that you lose your taste for a lot of the junk with low carb eating. You know, a lot of times people will say to me, I can't do low carb because (laughs) I love cake or I can't do it because I love potato chips. Listen, I get it. I grew up in a family where a meal was not considered complete until we had some kind of a super Sweet dessert after, right? I mean, yes. and yeah. stuff was horrible. sticky toffee
2: pudding and custard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> even like the processed stuff, like Twinkies. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of your listeners might be too young and won't remember some of that stuff, but that was what I grew up on. And, um, you know, as hard as it might sound, it gets better and better and better and easier and easier and easier the longer you stick to eating in this pattern
2: you're absolutely right and 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 you're never too young or too old i mean my my middle son started university recently and i have to say you know when he was at school He had a massively sweet tooth and there was a tuck shop and, you know, access to to all of these sort of sweet treats and vending machines and all of that. Being at uni and and cooking for himself, uh, he actually got into the habit of eating much more healthily. And when I would talk to him about what he was eating, I'd say, you know, Kit, you know, it sounds as if you're not actually having too much sugar because sugar was always the thing I would get on his back about. And he was saying, you know what, Mum, I think I've kind of lost my sweet tooth. And I was really amazed and obviously highly delighted to, to hear that. So even somebody who is used to really having a lot of sweets and sugars, you, you can lose it. You you kind of almost, in my experience anyway, I had to do three or four days of almost kind of going cold turkey, thinking I really need a piece of cake in the afternoon. But once you break through that, you, you just never, ever really want to go back, in my yep. experience.
1: Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I think is important for people to know is like you said, Liz, it might take a few days where you feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm having withdrawals. I'm getting a headache. I feel weak and shaky, but you will pull through and your body Mm -hmm. will adjust. And in the meantime, you can use what I call the carb swaps or the sweet swaps, right? (laughs) To help you feel more satisfied. So that you can break through. I mean, it really is an addiction. It's a psychological addiction and it's a physiologic addiction that our bodies really? to sugars.
2: So, do, do we? Is there actually such a thing as being physically addicted to sugars?
1: There's actually such a thing. We know that, for example, when you eat a large amount of something like highly sweet and palatable. The same areas of the brain which reinforce craving and reward pathways light up just the same as though you would take, like, let's say, for example, a drug addict takes a hit of cocaine. Um, If I ate a cupcake, right, the same area of my brain would light up and be flooded with the same reward chemicals as a drug addict taking a hit of dopamine. Absolutely. So I'm I'm a person who really does believe in the concept of sugar addiction. And I think we have good physiologic data to show that there is a physical route for where this addiction comes from.
2: Is there a mental health connection then with sugars and and brain health?
1: There absolutely is, Liz. So, you know, I think when we go back into our childhoods, right, um, many of us, have begun to associate sugar with reward at a very early age. And sometimes it happens quite incidentally, right? Like you fall off your tricycle and mom or dad or another adult comes to soothe you, right? Because you're crying and your knee hurts. Here's a lollipop, here's a sweet, here's an ice cream cone, right? And so what can happen over time if this happens again and again and again is a painful stimulus comes associated with sugar as a reward to take away that pain. And Mm. our brains can become very, very set on that and it can even develop into an eating disorder.
2: It's a really fascinating area. Thinking about the whole area of inflammation and low-carb diets, are there any kind of supplements that you would recommend to your patients or people generally thinking about low-carb? Is there anything that would help support this or perhaps you know amplify the effects
1: yeah so you know we don't have amazing data on a lot of supplements liz there are a few that have gotten some good publicity because there are some interesting and promising but very early results i have to tell you i'm not a huge supplement pusher because of that i think we need more randomized controlled vetted studies but there's definitely a lot of interest in supplements like berberine, green tea. Um, there's one called Lavidia that incorporates a bunch of different types of ingredients in to help stimulate the lower gut to help you feel more satisfied if you're intermittent fasting or between meals. How interesting. Yeah. What's that
2: called? Levidia.
1: Levidia. yeah. Disclaimer, I do advise that company on the development mm. of their supplement, but they do have some interesting early data that I think shows that it can help reduce hunger in people who are doing intermittent fasting and a low-carb eating yeah. plan. Here's another thing, since we were talking about bowel function as well. Many people often worry about developing constipation if they cut out whole grains from the diet. So magnesium can be a fantastic supplement for this because it can help with your bowel regularity. It's great for emotional health and well-being, and it can help your muscles contract more efficiently which helps you perform better in terms of physical activity and it's very inexpensive so i like to rep or recommend rather a um a magnesium supplement for individuals who are new to a low carb eating plan
2: interesting i know there are lots of different forms of uh, magnesium which particular ones do you favor
1: yeah, I think it depends. Um, you know, I think using magnesium citrate is definitely a good one to help promote bowel regularity. Um, so you can definitely look for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And berberine, I'm obviously familiar with green tea and the fact that that can help with fat metabolism. Berberine, what is that and where does it come from?
1: Yeah, berberine actually comes from a plant. Um, and it's actually, it has some interesting data associated with it that shows it can help lower blood sugar, boost your HDL cholesterol, um, support the health of your liver, right, as well as help weight loss. It's actually extracted from a group of different types of plant shrubs. The group is called berberis. Um, and it's been used for centuries in traditional Chinese medicine. It's it's a newer one, you know, to our modern day society.
2: Mm, fascinating, really fascinating. And last but not least, let's just touch on the topic of exercise. Does weight loss happen just on our plates, or can it also be kickstarted in the gym? what what how 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 important is it to to keep our exercise levels when we're on a low carb or any kind of eating plan?
1: Absolutely. So you know this is such an interesting um, topic. I feel like, you know, exercise has such a negative connotation for many people, right? It's like, we think about this image of us trying to squeeze into some little spandex outfit and <laughs> going over to me the gym and yeah, I don't know me either. and you know running on a treadmill or at least trying to and feeling sweaty mm. and out of breath and feeling self-conscious and people are looking at you and then you know why am i not losing weight i'm hungrier after i exercise so i eat more you know it feels like just part of a vicious cycle of unhealthiness but i do think that exercise or what I call movement is a very, very important part of a weight loss journey. Not because we have to burn extra calories to lose weight, right? Like I mentioned before, we're not math equations, but I think exercise can go a long way in terms of optimizing our mood, our stress, and our sleep. So that the process of our body releasing excess weight is easier right this is not about fighting our bodies this is about enabling and empowering our bodies to do the work it already can do for us to bring us to the healthiest weight possible and you know here's the other thing exercise has been shown to help us maintain our weight too right and one of the most common problems that people have with dieting is that we yo-yo right like i said we We're quote unquote good, you know, for a period of a few weeks or even a few months, we lose the weight, but then we go back to habits and regain. Exercise can help prevent that. And Mm. last but not least, (laughs) while there has never been one diet that's been proven to help us live longer, we have lots of great data that shows that exercise is the one health intervention that can prolong our lifespan. So regardless of whether or not you're looking to lose weight, exercise is critical for that.
2: Brilliant. Well, that is a very positive and empowering note to end on. Linda, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Learned so much from talking to you and very, very best of luck with all your work. I hope that we can connect again in the future. But thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Liz. It's really great to have had the chance to talk.
2: Well, very many thanks again to Linda. And that is it for today's episode. And as always, you will find all the links and the resources that we mentioned over on lizalwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled, of course, with plenty of low-carb recipes and tips for living well. And Dr. Linda's book, just to remind you, is called Not Another Keto Book, The Obesity Medicine Solution to Lose Weight – boost your metabolism and feel great. Huge thanks to all who have left us such lovely reviews for the show. It really does help others to find us and grow the community. So thank you very much indeed. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye bye. The Liz Earl Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinire.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?